Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, June 5, we'll be explaining why Scott Morrison's trip to the Solomon Islands has absolutely nothing to do with Chinese interests in the South Pacific. We'll look at a sudden eruption of ideas for Indigenous recognition and wonder why Trump slammed Mexico with new tariffs, but not Australia. As always, we'll close with our Books and Cultures segment, and today our panellists will talk about a new biography of Jeremy Corbyn, some hard-hitting videos on the Murray-Darling water disaster, a paper on the strange history of how Canberra came to be where it is, and Chris Berg will review a book on how to defend a siege, which for some reason has piqued his interest. So, speaking of Dr Berg, welcome to Looking Forward. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be back. Great to have you, my co-host, of course. And uh, now also uh, Gideon Rosner, our Director of Policy at the IPA. Always good to be on Looking Forward, Scott. Thank you for being here, Gideon. And IPA Research Fellow, Dr Zach Gorman. Good morning. Great to have you back, Zach. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate to support our research and our many great digital products. In fact, our end of financial year appeal is in full swing. If you don't like paying tax, and let's face it, who does? This is your chance to send a sling our way and reduce your taxable income. Talk to your accountant and see just how much of your hard-earned you can send towards the IPA. (laughs) Now it is time for that debate and discussion. Um, First up, uh, Chris Berg. We, there has been a flurry of stories about Indigenous recognition. There has been. So um, Ken White, oh, sorry, Ken Wyatt, of course, was um, uh, in, announced as the first Indigenous minister to hold the Indigenous Affairs portfolio under the new Morrison ministry. And very shortly after that, we are now once again debating Indigenous recognition. Um, the Courier-Mail has some draft plans that we haven't seen, but the Courier-Mail seems to have um, about a new Indigenous-led bureaucracy. Um, there's draft legislation about that that would review government policies, activate task forces, probe complaints about from about agencies from empowered communities. That's a quote and it would inform itself on any matter in any way it thinks fit. This looks very much like a sort of new version of ATSIC, which, of course, the Howard government had originally imposed and ultimately abolished. Um, but this is, this, is, this is not a constitutional body, as far as we know at the moment, but it comes in the light of really renewed debate about constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. The question that I have for, for the panel, but I'll start with you, Gideon, is um, there was two major political platforms at the last election. The Labor Party wanted to move ahead with Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. The Coalition did not want to do so. Why is it suddenly an issue now? I think it's a case of the Coalition as usual, uh, or as has been its habit of winning the economic debate, but waving the, waving, letting the cultural debate go through to the Keeper. Uh, the Coalition has not historically, or in recent history, been able to stand up to the at the very least the softer elements of the woke industrial complex so when you have in a half a lot of a few people in the liberal party room in fact who favor constitutional recognition when you have stakeholders who think that uh, who are wedded to the idea of constitutional recognition government departments academics uh, this, this is the liberal party going along with the softer elements of the the cultural zeitgeist is this a is this proposal really part of that and, and should we be concerned about um, this new indigenous-led body, because it doesn't. It strikes me that ATSIC had some serious problems, and um, as a bureaucracy, it's not the sort of thing I would support. But it's certainly very, very different from um, a constitutional change that would add a third chamber of parliament or even a constitutional advisory body or, or whatever the um, uh, structures that are being discussed at the moment. Zach, what, what, what should we should we be worried about this? Um, Well, it depends if you take a sort of defeatist attitude to the Liberal Party. So if there's so much momentum... Which I absolutely do, to be clear. I know you do. Um, (laughs) We're optimists of the RPA. (laughs) If there's so much momentum building towards some sort of Indigenous recognition, Indigenous voice, these sorts of things, um, we've got to hope that a Liberal Party will at least steer it down avenues that aren't as pernicious to freedom as the Labor Party might have. Obviously, we would hope that a Liberal Party would actually be classically liberal and wouldn't want to divide people up 
based on identity politics and based on race, but maybe in the political realities, something that can be abolished again, like ATSIC was, if it does prove to be as much of a failure as ATSIC, is not as bad as some big constitutional thing that we then can't get rid of. Yeah, it certainly will require a degree of adeptness. It, it, but there's there's so many different dynamics at play here. And, yeah, the Liberal Party has you know reasonably been uh, on the... Uh, the bus for reconciliation for a long time and uh, the phrase recognition was originally proposals to just to do that, to recognise uh, the prior occup- occupation of the continent somehow in the constitution. But of course, ever since the, uh, the Uluru Statement, it's been clear that Indigenous politics has, has moved well past that and, and I think probably there's still a slingshot effect of... Uh, all those stakeholders that Kitty was just talking about who were expecting a comfortable Labor victory and were just, you know, ready to come out and map out the plan for the stampede towards the referendum. So they're still trying to work out how they can keep those ideas in play while while the Liberal Party has to figure out, well, how, how much can it accommodate? How interested is it? What 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 would this sort of son of Atsik look like? Which which wasn't even talked about before the election. But I, I have a lot of sympathy with um, the indigenous supporters of these proposals because um, it, it, the the big problem in the indigenous recognition debate was always the fact that white Australia wanted to do one thing to the constitution that was deeply symbolic. So they wanted to put in preambles, they wanted to clear off redundant, bad, but redundant sections of the constitution that mentioned race and so forth. And quite rightly, people in Indigenous communities looked at it and said, well, you know, that, that this is just symbolic um, changes. This is uh, the, the mission of completing the constitution is a symbolic task. And that doesn't really affect either material conditions on the ground in Indigenous communities or a sense of control and empowerment. And what they're doing now is looking for that sense of control and empowerment. Well, what they, what they, based on the Courier Mail story, what they're actually going forward with will please nobody because the Uluru Statement, as I understand it, asks for something in the Constitution. There's no talk of a referendum being triggered to implement this body. Um, but in addition to that, there's no suggestion in the Courier Mail piece that this body would have any powers to actually oversee any funding. And that's where ASIC, ASIC really went wrong because there were a long string of allegations of mismanagement of money and so on. So all that we're really talking about, I think, um, we're yet to see the details, is a another consultative body. I don't think those that same constituency, Chris, will be happy with that either. To me, it seems like sort of a halfway compromise. Yeah, no, it is a halfway compromise, but it's a halfway compromise that at the very least tackles what clearly some people in the Indigenous community feel. So um, uh, Megan Davis, so she's an academic from University of New South Wales and she's been involved um, in, uh, in the Uluru Statement and lots of, lots of um, Indigenous recognition politics for a long time. She made a really interesting point the other day on a, um, on a Fairfax or a Nine Network podcast, um, which is pointing out that some of the changes that have occurred over the last few years in Indigenous policy have had the effect of removing control or removing stakeholders from the Indigenous community and moving money away from Indigenous groups to corporate reconciliation plans. So they've taken money Mm. out of small indigenous community groups and given it to woke capitalism. And that was an Abbott Abbott government policy. And you understand why the Abbott government wanted to do that because they were pushing really, really hard for this symbolic, wouldn't it be nice to complete the constitution? Here's a preamble type stuff. Um, And and they they just funded it. And quite understandably, the indigenous community, it's like, what on earth is going on? You're taking money away from there and giving it to the, quote, top end of town. We, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, though. I mean, this isn't a, a new thing. We, indigenous affairs in this country has been a tug of war between people who genuinely want to see the or want to focus on the material uh, disadvantage of Indigenous communities and the woke brigade who are fixated over symbolism. Uh, you know, I think the national apology was the right thing to do, and I, I uh, you know, think it was a moment of catharsis for the nation, but it didn't lead to any miraculous... Um, improvements in in a lot of indigenous communities we've uh, we've spend every year talking about the, the date of Australia Day we're talking about the national anthem now uh, there there is this and constant recognition would continue that same uh, that same trajectory of meaning you know symbolic um, but in, in, a, in a, ultimately ineffective 
solutions to so very that, real problems. What's that about the national anthem? Oh, so today is um, Wednesday, which means it's State of Origin Day, um, <laughs> and there's a big protest going on. What's that? Net, netball? No, no. <laughs> it's it's the great Ho- New South Wales sport mm. um, of NSWRL. Oh, of course. Uh, I'm happy to go back to the VFL and the NSWRL and. <laughs> You know, separation, the, the greater the separation, the greater the federations. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, State of origin, I tell you, well, when I was working up in Canberra, every time that asinine spectacle came on, it was like everybody just took the time off and everything. I couldn't we, stand it. We are seriously it. cutting into our potential listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was... A, That's all we got, Zach, here. A number of Indigenous <laughs> players on both sides have said that they're not going to sing the national anthem because they feel that the national anthem does not represent them and it's not the overall narrative of the national anthem it's one particular line about um we are young and free and they feel as one of the oldest if not the oldest continuous culture in the world that that doesn't really represent them um and craig kelly quite surprisingly has come out and supported them so craig kelly the quite conservative member for hughes who's normally thought of as the sort of hard right of the liberal party has said that if we make a minor change, like changing it to strong and free, that it's a bit more inclusive and these sorts of things. Not inclusive of you know people who don't have physical strength. <laughs> I, I'm sort of sympathetic to this. I mean, we only adopted Advance Australia Fair as our national anthem in 1984. We already changed a few of the words. And it we, is a shocking song. We got yeah. rid of I actually, I think it captures to a certain extent, um, as a historian, I see a lot of the aspirations of 19th century Australia, of this land of opportunity. Mm. I think that wealth for toil in particular, we should rip that out as the IPA and use that for our (laughs) dignity of work program. It's a song about, uh, it's about boundless planes to share. It's about wealth for toil. If you work hard, you will get rewarded in Australia. And that was the 19th century idea of Australia was this ideal of the self-made man, the ideal of people like Henry Parks. Um, So I have a lot of sympathy for that. But at the same time, getting rid of young and free is sort of getting rid of that sentiment anyway. So it's but a bit of it is precisely the sort of thing that is going to be put up by a government very soon, a con- probably a conservative government that wants to make symbolic changes to some national icon, whether that is um, uh, symbolic statements in the Constitution, whether it's the change to the national anthem or even a new national anthem or whatever it is. There'll be a flag debate what, before you know There it. will be a flag debate. Yeah. But what that, whatever that debate does and whatever the outcome of that is, it's going to make no material difference to Indigenous lives and it's going to make no material difference to Indigenous control over their lives. And so I, I think if we are to advance this discussion in a way that advances the prosperity of Indigenous people and the opportunity of Indigenous people in Australia, we need to be talking about, you know, devolving powers back to Indigenous communities again, not fighting about it in Canberra. I think symbolism really matters in issues like this. And that's why I think something like changing one particular line of the national anthem to make it more inclusive is a better way of going about it. One of my pet peeves with the way that Indigenous issues are tackled at the moment is that so much of it is about sort of separating Indigenous people from the rest of society. And I think that ultimately, long term, that's not going to produce the best outcomes. Um, So if we change the way that we're talking about these sorts of things to be talking about how do we get Indigenous people to be more comfortable with being part of this Australian society, then economically and these other things down the track, I think, will have flow and effect. But, I mean, to what end, though, Zach? I mean, as I said, that this is whether it's changing the anthem, whether it's the national apology and everything else, you know, wrongs have been committed in the past. We need to, as a nation, acknowledge our checkered history. We need to acknowledge that um, some of what is occurring in Indigenous communities today can be traced back to the wrongs that were committed, to, committed in the past. But, you know, we had the national apology, as I said, that great moment, that genuinely great moment of catharsis for our country. But in the 10-plus years since, what what have we achieved? How much more can we go down this road of symbolism which ultimately... I think that's a sort of different type of symbolism. I would count the apology um, it for all its merits as part of this narrative about um, Indigenous victimhood and how separate Indigenous people are from the rest of society. I certainly wouldn't endorse, for example, Indigenous 
um, constitutional but, recognition and these sorts of things that are about the separation. But the slight tweaking of the national anthem, the reason that I sort of support it and that Craig Kelly supports, people like Craig Kelly support it, is because it's about fostering that inclusivity that is what we really need rather than that divisive I, I actually, I actually well, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Whitlam put the national anthem on the table. Uh, I was uh, a supporter of uh, Waltzing Matilda because I, I, I thought a... Um, uh, our having our national song uh, being one about uh, rustling sheep uh, would, would have been quite appropriate and, and a better recognition of the 19th century ideals that you've been talking up, Zach, because I think oh. that's much closer to what it was actually Waltzing like. Waltzing Matilda's grown on me over the years. I never used to like that song, but I think it would be a much more iconic national anthem, Damn I think, than right. Advanced Australia Damn Affair. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would solve everything. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's make that change. Um, speaking of Aussie, 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 our wonderful Prime Minister is in the UK, has he and his missus have met with the Queen, uh, but he stopped off on the way uh, at the Solomon Islands. The very first visit as the newly re-elected Prime Minister was in the Solomon Islands, which has a population of 600,000 people. What's that about, Chris? Scott Morrison, as you say, was in the Solomon Islands this week. Um, he, he was announcing announcing major new spending in the Solomon Islands, $250 million, very explicitly and very deliberately to um, stave off Belt and Road investments in China. Um, this is a really interesting story because it's, it's part of that geopolitical dynamic that we're facing right now. I was in Papua New Guinea um, uh, late last year and talking to a number of Papua New Guineans. Of course, I was there to do some blockchain work, but talking to Papua, Papua New Guineans there, um, there's a massive amount of Chinese government spending in um, Papua New Guinea and a only tiny amount of Australian government spending. Um, and the Papua New Guineans were trying to urge us, urge Australia, to just pour more money in because they, they felt that with Chinese money came Chinese influence and Chinese control. Now, um, it, it, we are very uncomfortable with that sort of thing because for, from our perspective, it feels a little colonialist. It feels a little bit like um, the Australian government once again pouring resources into a foreign country to um, particularly a small foreign country to its north to gain some sort of influence and control and economic or political control. But that's what they were arguing. Uh, they were, that, that's what they were asking us for and that's what they are asking Well, I don't for. see it as so much colonialism. I see it as sort of a new Cold War mentality where you know, there are two blocks and uh, each block tries to get you know, uh, countries on side with are, signatures like are, that. Are we in that environment and should we should we respond in the same way that we did in, well, the, in the Cold War where well, we sort of divide up the planet and, and put investments in one place? Well, before, before Gideon answers that, you, you said that this was explicitly part of trying to um, uh, get in front of China's Belt and Road Initiative. It wasn't explicit at all. Morrison's got out of his way to say <laughs> this has nothing to do with China. This is just helping out the Solomon Islands. This is just helping out Vanuatu or PNG or insert name of South Pacific country here. So that, that is one way in which it differs from uh, the Cold War uh, because we, we're denying that there is any kind of great game afoot, even if there is. It, it does appear they're very quietly briefed out that very aggressively. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that's to do with the, the dynamic. I mean, there's no Iron Curtain here. There's no actual no, sort of two blocks squaring off. It's it's sort of almost like, a shadow we, boxing type dynamic. We like China. They buy lots of our stuff. Well, that, well that's the other complexity as well. I mean, this is, this is the, the, the frustrating thing about the China debate. There is... There are people who think it's the great menace that we're all, you know, have to really wise up and get tough on China and so on and so forth. Then there are people who say, no, free trade is wonderful. China buys our stuff. China's got billions, literally billions of consumers for Australian beef. You know, we shouldn't get them offside. I mean, I suspect the truth probably lies somewhere around the middle, but geopolitics isn't isn't my forte. Zach, what should we think about Belt and Road? Um I just wonder about sort of the internal dynamics within the Chinese authoritarian regime that's sort of driving this, because a lot of the Western world has really bought into these ideas of free trade and international diplomacy, and that that sort of Cold War mentality is a bit um, past its use-by date, that it's no longer really necessary. We understand that if we're able to trade cheaply for goods, that's better than having to conquer a country um, directly or indirectly in order to obtain those goods. I think... Perhaps what's going on internally in um, China, and this is to draw an extremely long bow and just um, essentially speculate, 
But we see and we get frustrated as libertarians, as classical liberals, with the internal political dynamics of a democracy and how our political leaders always want to have something to do. Then this is why government continually expands, because they need to find Correct. a reason for their own existence. And I think dictatorial regimes are no different. Um, what motivates them is different and what, um, what avenues of sort of agitation they go down is different. But in order for the authoritarian regime to justify itself, it sort of needs an enemy. It sort of needs this expansionary view of the world. And I find that quite concerning and difficult to get my head around because so much of the world has sort of outgrown it. Even if that is the intention of the Chinese, and it, it may very well be, we, I think we should take a realistic look at how the Belt and Road Initiative is faring. I mean... Countries are that are asking for investment like Papua New Guinea are wising up to what's going on here. Um, now, the, Mulda, the government in the Maldives was turfed out last year by an anti, a party running on an express on an anti-Belt and Road platform because of um, concerns there. Mahathir Mohamed, who I don't agree with a lot of the time on many, many issues, uh, to put it mildly. <laughs> just to clarify. Just to clarify. <laughs> um, yeah, the old, you know, um, he's, he's come out and publicly said that the Belt and Road Initiative is quite a form of new colonialism. Uh, countries where Belt and Road projects have run into difficulty partly because of suspicion of China have, have occurred in places like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Burma, Nepal, Pakistan. Belt and Road projects are being held up because of anti-China or at least suspicion of China there. I mean, these are not countries that can afford to look a gift horse in the mouth, but even they are questioning the, the wisdom of going in on these sort of endeavours. So with all of that in mind, is it worth Scott Morrison going to Honiara to pony up $250 million of our money simply for playing catch-up? Well, I'm not look, sure. I mean, he, he may well be doing... He may well have wanted to do so otherwise and just briefed quietly, yeah. Oh, this isn't just foreign aid. This is a special geopolitical thing. Don't worry, smarter people than me are in charge. Um, uh, but I think I, I think Zach's point is, is really um, significant because the internal dynamics of Chinese um, politics are clearly driving a lot of the Belt and Road initiatives. And there's a lot of evidence that we've now got about how deeply dysfunctional this is as a government policy. Correct. And if I was a Chinese citizen, I would be furious about all this money being poured into very bad projects around the world for very uncertain purposes. And there's a lot of evidence about how it's deeply connected to internal local government corruption. Because I mean, the thing about the Chinese state... And it's, a, it's a Xi Jinping pet project as well. Well, it's a, it's a Xi Jinping pet project, but it's a, it's a pet project that he announces and they give these big grand policy statements or big grand statements of um, uh, directions that everyone should go and then local and provincial authorities have to go and do it and there's a huge gap between Beijing mm. and the provincial authorities um, and there's an enormous uh, capacity for them to make rents, to, to um, corrupt practices, to enrich themselves, enrich um, their, their friends in business and so forth and they're just exporting that model of political economy around the world. What has been very heartening is precisely, as you've said, Gideon, which is the, the political pushback in some of these democratic mm -hmm. countries that are vulnerable. Like, you, 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 can, you can manipulate Cambodia because it's a dictatorship. Mm. Um, it's much, much harder to manipulate a democratic country like that because you will get pushback from the citizens. But I What's also very comforting about that, um, about it as well, is the Chinese government hasn't seemed to be using this as the debt trap that everybody's been concerned about, and they've been renegotiating many debts and restructuring many debts when some um, countries are, feel unable to pay. So it's not as obviously economic colonialism as um, as your new mate. Yes, a, yes and no. I mean, they, they, the Sri Lankans did lose a port recently when um, China foreclosed. I think there's been concern that Kenya will lose its major port in Mombasa because of threat of foreclosure. But, um, yeah, no, that's, a, that's an interesting point that it's not, not a uniform thing. Um, from an Australian perspective, I don't mind this as much as I otherwise would. So, obviously... I hate taxpayer money just being burnt up in smoke. Um, but the situation in um, Samoa was very specific because... So it, Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands, sorry. Um, S Pacific Islands. Um, <laughs> the situation in Solomon Islands was very specific because they're one of the few regimes in the region that recognises an independent Taiwan 
And it's specifically because of that that the Chinese government is trying to heap pressure on them. So we're spending this money to essentially give them the economic backing to say that you can have independent political viewpoints in this region mm. and you won't be sort of driven out of town for it. And I certainly, if you were to compare and contrast what the Morrison government is doing here with what the plans of the defunct Shorten government were, which was to just throw money at the at the UN pile and hope that it went somewhere for the good of mankind, I far prefer the direct um, impact standing up in the region and for people that we should directly care about because they are our neighbours. Yeah, I do. I, I did. Uh, it's very well uh, pointed out that, but I did find it sort of amusing that. You've got the US and Australia saying to the Solomon Islands, you should keep the recognition of Taiwan because you shouldn't recognise China the way we did 50 years ago. <laughs> I mean, Nixon, Nixon and Whitlam actually took care of that in the 70s for us, but we're sort of, sort of saying to the Solomon Islands, and no, 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 stick with Taiwan because you shouldn't even have diplomatic relations. That's, uh, one, uh, that's one already. The other, the other, of course, is we're building a submarine cable for the Solomon Islands to replace a contract that they had with Huawei. And this is one of the great issues of dealing with China, and we'll talk about tariffs in a minute. The Huawei solution actually would have been much better. <laughs> so we're using taxpayers' money to replace a solution that the Solomon Islands could have had with Huawei, but which had other issues. I, so. I feel like I'm missing something here. I mean, why do we care whether the Solomon Islands recognises Taiwan or not? And why does China care for that matter? It's not like they're a major world power or have, have any... Capacity to resist a Taiwanese independence movement or something. It's obviously a threat to the um, Chinese government's vision of itself, right? Okay, Um, and and that's that's why you know this is this is deep with symbolism, and this week in China Australia relationships has been deep with symbolism because there was um, it is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre um, on the same day. Um, uh, we had warships, Chinese warships, visiting Sydney Harbour, which everybody reported was a surprise, but clearly not a surprise because, you know, the well, Australian Not Navy, surprising you know. <laughs> to the not groups of Chinese Australians who were waiting at the wharf, <laughs> waving flags. Clearly, no, no. clearly WhatsApp had been working over yeah, time. Yeah, no, uh, uh, WeChat. <laughs> WeChat, um, uh, so, so, but this is, a, this is right now a relationship deep with symbolism. You're right, the Huawei um, stuff and the Australian relationship with the Five Eyes group mm. and um, is the entire Five Eyes um, security conference Pact going to um, ban Huawei or remove Huawei from their networks in the same way that um, uh, we, we've been dealing with cryptography standards and so forth for a long time. Um, this is this is a really challenging year in the China West relationship. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, more sympathetic to Taiwanese independence, I could not be. But does it justify two hundred fifty million dollars? I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. Status status quo. Uh, please don't shoot at each other. I think is our preferred option. Ideally, yes. Very good. Uh, now, I did I did promise that we would talk about tariffs because uh, it takes two to have a trade war and um, President Trump has uh, been very active again and not just in respect of China. It does take two to make a trade war and interestingly enough, uh, this week is also the one-year anniversary of the trade war. So happy birthday, trade war, um, uh, given the 15% tariffs. And Gideon's birthday. And G- <laughs> oh, <laughs> happy birthday, birthday trade war and Gideon. Um, uh, Thank you so much, not everybody. In, not in that order. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, of course, currently there are the United States has, um, uh, has 15% tariffs on Chinese goods and is threatening or on a large volume of Chinese goods and threatening to go up. But this week... Um, or or, uh, somewhat five days ago or so, um, Donald Trump announced that there was going to be a 5% tariff on all Mexican goods, every good coming across the border from Mexico to the United States, um, uh, which would rise all the way up to 25% in October until the border is secure on the Mexican side. This is um, interesting in a lot of ways from an immigration policy perspective, from a tariff policy perspective, but from a um, just a sheer negotiating perspective, mm. it's also quite bizarre given that at the very same time, the um, both the Mexican and United States Congress are trying to pass the revised NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, um, through their own congresses and, and trying to get political approval from that. Um, and as you mentioned right at the start, um, uh, Scott, the there what is some suggestion, and there was a New York Times um, article and some um, support for that, that they were also considering a tariff on Australia. So finally, the border between Australia and the United States would be closed. 
Um, <laughs> making my job a lot easier. But um, what, what are we to make of, of, of this new, sur- not just surge in tariffs from an economic perspective, it's not just protectionism here, it's tariffs as a political tool to try to get policy regime change in in foreign countries well my first question is why would he pick on australia i mean it's not like australian uh, australia is taking american jobs what company in the u.s decides to close down and move to australia because it's cheaper to do business there what do we have you know lo- uh, lower wages here do we have lower regular regulatory costs here do we have cheaper energy uh so that's the first thing i'd, I'd sort of wonder we, we did once have cheaper oh, energy oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, many many moons ago federal um, government's taking care of that uh, uh, you, we can say to trump you know don't need to all, worry all, there all sorted yeah yeah correct no competitive advantage there anymore but um look uh, look I, i'm one of these people that loves trump i love you know what he's done with red tape and with taxes. I even love what people don't love about Trump. I love the tweeting. I love the crudeness. I love the swagger. I, I love the authenticity. The one thing all, that always people like me come around to is trade. I do not like the protectionism. We all know trade wars are bad. We all know that free trade is good for everybody involved and good for humanity. Um, so on these measures, I am you know, appalled by them as a matter of trade policy. As a matter of politics, I can understand the use of trade the u.s's trading heft as leverage to resolve what are some actual legitimate disputes whether it be the dispute with mexico over the border or whether it be uh, genuine issues with the way china does business like technology theft or um you know heavy-handed regulation on tech and media companies in particular or its huge subsidization of its own industries i i think to get a better deal i can come meet trump halfway and accept that whacking on a few tariffs temp um, temporarily to cause a bit of pain for the other side to get an outcome that's good for his country and good for his people. But, I can get behind that. But no, no, but aren't you wildly underplaying it? Because he's not whacking tariffs on other people. The people who pay the tariffs are not Chinese producers. They are American citizens because tariffs are taxes. They are taxes levied on your own people. So this is this is um, uh, this is an attack in the same way that a raised taxes would be an attack. An attack on American consumers to pursue geopolitical goals. Shouldn't that make you more outraged? I, 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 look, I look again. I don't like tariffs. I don't like uh, trade wars. You know, I'm, I'm a free trader to the to the bootstraps. Um, but I, I think there are competing priorities here. That that I, I know that. The real people who are hurt by tariffs are the consumers. You know that. I think on some level Donald Trump knows that. But I think that's Do maybe you? maybe less no. important. <laughs> I don't maybe, think he does. But that no. may, well, he may or he may not. I'm not a mind reader. But the point is that it, 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 that in the medium term at least is less important than getting his way with uh, Mexico and solving that problem no. that he ran on, uh, than, than solving issues with the Chinese. I think, uh, you know, invoking a bit of pain. And since when have politicians been averse to inflicting pain on their own people through taxes? Yeah, but you can't, you can't uh, run China and Mexico together in the same argument. I mean, the tragedy for Mexico was this is a country that for a very, very long time was completely insular, protectionist, uh, poor as a church mouse because of self-imposed stupidity. Um, what, what was it run by the Institutional Revolutionary Party? I think for you know, <laughs> which is a wonderful, wonderful phrase. Um, uh, and you know, NAFTA helped bring them out of that. And and mm. so this is selling down the river the the liberals, the the true liberals, you know, in Mexico that have fought for years to say that free trade is good. Let's enmesh ourselves with the U.S. economy. Let's open up to the world. Let's break down all these barriers. Let's get the state out of business. You know, the, all the entrepreneurs in Mexico, um, you know, which have just, you know, some of them have clearly been too successful in, in, in organising themselves. It's not just, you know, car companies relocating to Mexico. There's been a, uh, a domestic upsurge and, and, and it's just selling them down the river. But what, why, what does Trump care about what Mexican economists think? Well, but... but what about the, the geopolitics of having a, a southern neighbour? You can either have a poor, impoverished, protectionist, inward-looking and dumb, or you can have one that's actually... Mi- migrant-producing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, and, and, it does uh, that you already. Want to, you want to stop migration, you make Mexico rich. Uh, yeah. How's that worked for the past 20 years? No, I mean, but, but most, of, yeah, most of the caravans are coming up from, from Central and South America as well. It's, you know, the, I, I have a, I have a lot of sympathy with the Mexican government. Zach, how do you feel, how do you feel about um, tariffs as a tool of geopolitics rather well, than economics? I think that this is obviously Trump trying to take the art of the deal and sort of use 
international relations as business relations where you can sort of strong arm someone into doing things and all the rest of it. And we know that this is bad because tariffs hurt the consumers and tariffs hurt the people um, within the nation more than they hurt the people externally. But I think one of the real reasons that Trump has even been able to get away with this is that we think we've embraced free trade in the West, but we never really embraced free trade in the West. It's always been these multilateral and bilateral agreements with a thousand attached terms and conditions. And it's only um, if it's reciprocal, true embracing of free trade accepts that free trade is good for your country. It's good for your economy. It's good for your consumers. Even if the rest of the world spurns you, it's having that um, 19th century New South Wales optimism (laughs) to stand up to Victoria and the rest of the country Uh, and be like, stuff you... We will open our trade barriers to the world and we'll be richer because of it. We've always looked at, in the late 20th century into the 21st century, we've looked through um, tariffs and free trade through this narrow lens that is one of the reasons that Trump is able to sort of spin things the way that he does. I I think that's right. I don't know why you had to make it personal, Zach. But um, (laughs) uh, one of the things that's always bugged me about the way we talk about free trade agreements in Australia, and I'm not as much of a skeptic of of multilateral or even bilateral trade agreements as as some are. But one of the things that really bugs me is when politicians sell this, particularly when the Abbott Abbott government was passing so many free trade agreements, which I I thought was good. Three and two years. Three, three and two years. Testament to Tony Abbott and how wonderful he was <laughs> and how he shouldn't have been rolled. <laughs> um, what really bugged me about that, Gideon, um, was the fact that when they sold these, it was only ever about opening up market access in foreign countries. It was never about the fact that we as consumers would be getting cheaper goods. We have a free trade agreement with Japan or with China or with uh, the United States. That means the Big benefit for us as as citizens, as consumers, as people who live in a society. The big benefit from us is now we get cheaper access to foreign goods. That's where the benefit of free trade agreements come from. But but the politics is obviously so distorted that they can't sell that. They have to sell. Well, oh no, it's wonderful that a couple of beef producers get to <laughs> get slightly cheaper access into Chinese markets. Yeah, good. That's good. That's really good for the beef producers, and that's really good for Chinese citizens. But the benefit is what we get coming as imports. Yeah, but politically, that's not a viable thing to be selling because the first thing that you then hear is, well, great, then I'll, you know, country, central people in central Queensland will be out of a job and in manufacturing bases and so on. But I think that Zach raises a really, really important point is that I think when we talk about Trump and trade, and Trump is admittedly bad on trade, but it's not like Trump is Robinson Crusoe. He did not interrupt some sort of free trade nirvana, this global <laughs> sort of coming together. Zach's absolutely right. Every free trade agreement is riddled with carve-outs and exemptions and special favours and all sorts of other things. You know, Abbott, Tony Abbott, much as I love him, I, I love him almost as much as I love Trump, if not more. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, tr- Tony Abbott stood up at that wonderful victory in 2013 and said Australia is open for business. One of the first things his government did was um, override the Foreign Interest Review Board uh, the Foreign Investment Review Board's decision on Grain Corp, on national security grounds. How is foreign ownership of an agribusiness company in any way a threat to national security? Um, it was a threat to the National Party. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was the issue, Gideon, as you well know. And, and, and we're one of the better people. We're one of the better countries when it comes to trade. You ever tried to do business with the EU? They're, the, the block's set up partly to be this big protection it's for trade is free within the eu but partly they've been set up to create this big protections juggernaut so i think you know all these um for lack of a better way to put it globalist types who sit around saying oh isn't trump terrible he's disrupting the wonderful free trade order that we have he's disrupting the wonderful coming together of humanity i'm sorry the picture is not that rosy it'll be a long time before we have genuine global free trade no that's right and and one of the and that the longer term perspective is useful because um, there is has been a market increase in protectionism in the world since the global financial crisis. And um, there was a lot of attention tried to draw to this fact um, and tried to prevent countries from turning protectionist when the um, economy, when the global economy turned poor. But unfortunately, for the most part, that was unsuccessful. And quite quickly after the global financial crisis, there were um, tariffs on cars and, and all the sectors that were under threat from, from the macroeconomic conditions as yeah. well. And so in that sense, in that sense, you could say that the Trump era 
um, uh, protectionism is just one of a kind with a trend. But my my strong view is when we are talking about tariffs of ten percent, twenty five percent on uh, on Mexico, five percent, ten percent, twenty five percent on China, that is of a quantitatively significantly different thing. Yeah, I think. Well, and if you take the long view, it, it is actually deeply concerning because. That was part of a world order that was established after World War II. The Bretton Woods Agreements, uh, the great institutions, uh, originally the World Bank, the IMF, um, uh, what became the World Trade Organization in due course. This was a, a global order imposed by the victors, it, it, it can be said, but uh, it worked uh, for 20 or 30 years uh, and then one by one, each of those institutions has failed. I mean, Nixon uh, blew up the uh, the international currency agreements. The IMF is now a disgrace. Uh, the World Bank is a disgrace, and now the 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 trade architecture is falling apart. This, so it's more than just the GFC. If you look at the the long arc of history, it's it's all actually falling apart. So it's I'm not saying I'm a globalist, but if you are, it's getting harder and harder to be one because uh, its underpinnings are actually under deep, deep threat. I, I'm look. I'm a globalist, but um, the big issue with the um, trade architecture was the inability for us to do multilateral trade agreements, um, and that inability has really lasted for the better part of 20 years now. Um, and that's why we moved into these bilateral trade agreements. That's and and it's created the opportunity for this politicization of 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 free trade. I I, I agree with Zach. What we really need to do is um, free trade in one country. Get rid of our get rid of our tariffs and our protectionism. Yeah, that's something the IPA can definitely get behind. To do, to do that as well, we need to make sure that, you know, the manufacturing has hit the wall in this country. Um, and that's yeah, partly because of increased competition from overseas, but partly because we do everything we can to destroy manufacturing. We, we hike our energy prices. We hike our labour costs. We make uh, we lay a red tape on everything. We need to, the right, and people who do believe in free trade, and despite me defending Trump, I'm one of them, we need to redirect the anger of people who genuinely are feeling the pinch of automation, losing their jobs and outsourcing and so on, and saying this is not because of free trade and of people in China or India or anywhere else. This is because your own government has failed you because they have hogtied your employer and made it impossible for them to operate in this country. Well said, you <laughs> We have come to that part of the show where we look at books and culture. We ask our panellists what they've been reading, watching or listening to. Who would like to take us away? I will have a go first, Scott. I read a novel. Um, uh, it's not a very political novel, but it's a novel called 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City. It's by the British novelist Tom Holt. He's writing under the pseudonym of K.J. Parker. It's a very, uh, it, it, it's a light uh, and amusing novel. It's very opinionated about a main character called Orhan, who's an engineer who finds himself leading the defense of a fictional medieval city against an attacking force. It's very focused on engineering, of all things. It's a novel about engineering and about the um, engineering challenges of defeating siege, um, uh, defeating against catapults and, and siege equipment. Sounds like a real page turn. It is No, it's actually, it is genuinely really fun and really great. And, and I wanted to talk about it because that's what I read this week. But um, but I, I have come up with a political view about it. So um, uh, this main character, Orhan, he's, he becomes the leader of the city. He's just a, an engineer and he's very self-deprecating. Um, uh, but, you know, it, the emperor is unwell or something along those lines. So he's functionally the emperor. And what he has to do is get the leading civil society organization of the city to work together and what the story that um, uh, that Holt paints is actually a rather interesting story about non um, non-state civil society organizations coming together to coordinate a defense of a city mm. um, uh, in the absence of you know the the emperors is is functionally absent um, the, there is no army there is just um, uh, groups of people who can and can cooperate under spontaneous order. Spo it's, spontaneous well, it's not order. quite a spontaneous order because he's he's ordering them around, so he is the <laughs> spontaneity. But um, it look it, you don't have to read it for the politics. It is a just really fun novel. But, but you did you don't have to read it for the politics. But, but you but somehow I, managed I, to do so. I stretched a political story out of it. Well so. done, well done. So so uh, that story shares something with um with Zulu, the great movie, but with Michael Caine, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, that was the engineers who um. Led the defence. Yeah. Because the army was being slaughtered somewhere else. Gideon. 
So I am reading a book called Dangerous Hero, which is an unauthorised biography of Jeremy Corbyn, which Scott, you <laughs> plopped on my desk a few weeks ago and said uh, asked me to review for the IPR review. So yep. a great perk of this job. I, I, and I didn't give you any guidance as to... Um uh, your take on it either. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah. that, no, that's right. Uh, but, but, you know, one of the perks of this job is that, you know, people plop free books on your desk, desk here and there. <laughs> so uh, so that's really good. But look, I'm reading it. It's it's a very, very British style hatchet job. Um, very, very entertaining. Um, but, you know, the upshot of it is uh, relevantly that, yes, Jeremy Corbyn really is that bad. Yes, he sympathises <laughs> with IRA terrorists, even ones who, you know, blown up and killed his fellow British citizens. Yes, he is all friendly with all manner of extreme Islamic terrorist groups that you know, even Lee Rhiannon wouldn't touch with a barge pole. Yes, he genuinely does want to nationalise the means of production, distribution and exchange. But here's the thing. He is actually a really, really... Uh, he's, he's, he's stupid. He is not an intelligent <laughs> guy. No, but this is the thing. It's sort of his, his runaway success sometimes gives us the impression that he's some sort of political genius. He is... It, 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 you know, going back to it, right when he was a kid, he, he was the runt of the litter in the um, Corbyn family. He was the only one to not go to university because he couldn't, nothing wrong with people who choose not to go to university, but tried as he might, he couldn't get in. He was sent off on some mission to Jamaica where he mixed with all manner of extremist um, independence movement people and, and things like that, and then came back to Britain and found his place in his calling in the world by stacking out Labor Party branches and playing internal games, almost like a student politician. And th But this is the thing, because he is of such low intellect, he's clung onto an ideology, an extreme Marxist ideology that he picked up somewhere in the 60s, which he doesn't, doesn't, have, doesn't have the intellectual prowess to understand. So he has this juvenile high school understanding of goodies versus baddies where he will side who will um, you know bang and scream and bang his fist about the Iraq war you know with some justification in hindsight we can all say but will say nothing about not even condemn not even agree with the condemnation of Saddam Hussein for gassing Kurds because somebody like a Saddam Hussein is a victim of terrible imperialism he really is the lowest common denominator in left-wing um, thought and to the extent that he will even say that national uh, that privatizing British telecom was a bad idea he wants to go back to the days when you had to wait 12 months to get a phone line installed <laughs> I mean this is the kind of uh, for, for him it is about the 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 it's, he's driven a lot by the fellow travelers he's picked up over the years but it's always been this contest of you know the left taking control of the, this council, the left taking control of this local party branch, the left taking control of the Labor Party, the hard left taking control of, you know, stamping its authority on the Labor Party to make it into the Corbyn hard left Labor Party and eventually, uh, you know, turning Britain into this socialist Nirvana that, as well. Is that the story of the book? So, um, I mean, from, from the outside, it does look like He's been actually remarkably successful, at least certainly holding power within the Labor Party. Um, obviously, Labor's not doing very well against all um, against the best efforts of the Conservatives. The mm. Labor Party is not um, exactly in the advance. But how does how do how does the book explain what appears to be his longevity? in the role. Well, that's the fascinating thing. He, he sort of, um, it, it goes into the various leadership challenges as he, he's been under, the various threats that he's miraculously escaped from. And it's a combination of incompetence by the old Blairites in the um, Labor Party to blast him out. Um, the Theresa May's incompetence, which gave him a huge boost in the 2017 election. And also the the internal party rules in the Labor Party, which he exploited, the fact that if you play, paid three pounds or something, you could sign up as a Labor member. And the scale of you know, what branch stacking by militant, militant left... They make the CFMEU look like uh, the IPA. Uh, some of these you know, militant unions in the UK, that the scale of the stacking by them uh, has is is really something quite extraordinary. So yeah, very very entertaining read. Uh, no, we, and we do look forward to the review in the um, uh, July edition of the we'll IPA. Just transcribe, just transcribe this, and Bob's your uncle. Well, there you go. <laughs> Save me writing it. We will send it off to rev.com to get it transcribed. No, well done, Gideon. Uh, I might go next. Uh, everyone around this table, including our wonderful producer James Bolt, were at the recent Friedman conference in Sydney, and during a breakout session, I saw a wonderful video or series of videos by the uh, libertarian artist and filmmaker Topher Field on the disaster of uh, the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and the Murray-Darling Basin 
plan which uh, is creating havoc through uh, in farming communities right through the the Murray Darling Basin. Uh, it's a it's a complex topic. We we see things uh, for those of us who are not not close to it, who aren't reliant on irrigation for a living, uh, who don't uh, hear the stories of the farmers every day, who don't have water allocations. It, it can seem complex. You see. Uh, uh, the ABC will run stories of, of fish kills in, in the uh, in the Darling around the Menindee Lakes and they'll blame climate change or they'll blame this or that. Uh, these are wonderful videos available on Facebook. As I say, I saw them at the Friedman Conference, but they're on Facebook. This uh, Topher Field is a, a legend at actually breaking down complex issues. Um, is recorded, uh, is shot all the way up and down the basin, including to the to the lower lakes uh, in South Australia where mo most of the uh, so-called environmental flows are basically being flushed into the ocean for no good reason based on bad science. Um, the first video is about the human cost for farmers, uh, suicides in farming districts, people going to the wall, the farm valuations which are less than the, the value of the debt that they have and this is a man-made drought as he points out because there is water around, but successive governments have nationalised the Murray-Darling. They've handed it over to a Murray-Darling Basin Commission with insane environmental objectives, less and less water available for irrigation. This has nothing to do with climate change, nothing to do with the drought. This is just very, very bad public policy made with no regard for the social and economic costs. So we will link to those videos for uh, if, and I was going to say, if you have an interest in the Murray-Darling Basin, you've probably already watched it. That we're talking about videos with hundreds of thousands of views, but even if you don't, I'm going. Uh, then you definitely need to look at it because this is an issue for Australia, not just for the people that are reliant on those water supplies. I, I, I want to point something out slightly tangential. Topher's work is consistently excellent, but what I'm really excited by is something that Topher represents, which is the move in the libertarian community, in the classical liberal, in the conservative community, to pushing out cultural content um, uh, on, on YouTube, on videos, obviously the podcasts and all the work that the IPA has been doing. But it's a really important change in um, uh, the output of the freedom movement. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that he's had the opportunity to tackle what is a sleeper of a topic. And certainly in inner city Melbourne, it's easy to ignore the Murray-Darling Basin Commission um, disaster. But, um, but No, no, well is, said. Uh, yeah, 20 years ago, uh, someone like Topher would have had to made a video and, and try to get it picked up by the ABC or someone. But, <laughs> uh, and, and that would have been the end of it. Now he's, you know, cumulatively, it must be well over half a million views on Facebook. So, um, Well, I'm going to go on a tangent from there because the Murray-Darling issue is ultimately a constitutional issue. It comes back to a debate um, in the constitutional debates to, where they were trying to give New South Wales was trying to force... Um, a clause that would give each of, its each of the states involved in the Murray-Darling Basin um, use of their own water and not give that power over to the federal government. But someone inserted the word reasonable before use and that <laughs> put it over to the lawyers and it all went to hell in a half basket. Um, so I've been reading this article called Dis Dished Like a Dinner by the Victorians, um, written by Paul Strangio, in the Australian Journal of Politics and History. And it's an article about the sort of backroom deal that ensured that the parliament would sit in Melbourne at, after 1901, after Federation, um, but that Canberra, that the ACT would ultimately be within the territory of New South Wales, but 100 miles from Sydney. It's sort of a pet issue of mine. I, I talk about it in my book on Sir Joseph Carruthers, um, that it's basically this Pyrrhic victory that um, George Reid negotiated to try to get um, the capital site in New South Wales. But by the time Canberra was built and they moved the parliament there in 1927, all the damage had been done. Um, and this article is sort of talking is about... Is this a blame Victoria thing? It's not a blame <laughs> Victoria thing. I would um, connect it to our colleagues' recent um, article on the Canberra swamp and how you have this sort of political culture 
in Canberra, the Canberra bubble that really um, influences what sort of policies get thought up, what policies get talked about. We also have a great deal of regionalism um, being talked about in the post-federal election with sort of Quexit and people wanting to get rid of Queensland because they actually have decent Australian mainstream values. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was... It, so the article is exploring the extent to which all the competitive advantages that Victoria had in those first couple of decades um, by hosting the parliament really contributed to how politics development developed. So obviously, um, protectionism won in the first decade of Australian politics. That was the main fight that was going on between the free traders and the protectionists. Well, the protectionists had things like the fact that it was sitting literally in Victorian parliament. So um, Alfred Deakin had offices around the corner. George Reid, the opposition leader for the majority of the first decade, couldn't even attend parliament half the time because they didn't give the opposition leader an allowance and he didn't get paid enough to even attend parliament. You had the age completely dominating the press gallery. And all these sorts of things really contributed to the extent to which protectionism won out um, ultimately in those early debates. And it was um, an, incredibly, an incredible disappointment to the majority of the country. Um, so in the first decade of Australian politics, both WA, New South Wales and Queensland all had state premiers, at least internally, because I've seen the um, secret documents with New South Wales and Queensland talking about secession and getting out of federation because basically it was all for Victoria and the only people that were happy with federation were Victoria and its appendages in South Australia and Tasmania. <laughs> wow. This is, you just wanted to Not to offend it. any <laughs> South Australians or Tasmanians who no, happen to be listening. No, it is fascinating. And, and uh, I did pen a little piece for the IPA a long time ago when I was asked to nominate uh, Australia's greatest mistakes and I, I nominated Canberra. And I must admit, even as someone who's deeply suspicious of uh, New South Welshmen and their idea that Sydney would have made a great capital for the for the country, I actually said that Canberra had been such a disaster that I even would have preferred Sydney, just because <laughs> a capital should be in a real city. No, it should be. It yeah. should be. It should be near the um center, the the financial commerce, of our and, commerce. The and it's yeah. and it's not about the politicians it's about the bureaucrats and so i think uh, I, I look forward to reading the the piece but i think what's interesting is the real damage that canberra has done has been not where parliament is because politicians don't get out very much when they're in parliament anyway the real damage has been the fact that the bureaucracy is by itself in a center of power unconnected to the rest of the economy so when it chooses to do these petty regulations when it chooses to um, control and intervene in the economy it's controlling and intervening in economy that it is a very long way away from it's also created a, a, a real really noticeable class of elites i mean public sector salary public service salaries especially at senior levels are obscenely high um, now when i i start i worked for an mp when i was you know a kid i was 21 or something and when I went up then, it was 2008, um, there was a pub, a Chinese restaurant in the airport. It was, you know, a sleepy little town. When I went back later to work as a ministerial staffer, uh, less than, you know, about five, six, seven years later, there were bars and restaurants and, and cafes and it, it, it turned into this glittering, almost like a mini Washington, D.C. It had grown so fat off the largesse and the expansion of the public service in the Rudd and Gillard years. As a staffer, I thought it was great because there were places to go and, and eat and drink and let your hair down after a long day. But as a liberal, I find it, found it absolutely horrifying, this glittering city uh, that, that has grown off the excesses of, uh, of you know, uh, our, our stolen money. And I think the other thing is... Um, that we also just want a federation that's small enough that it doesn't really matter where Canberra is or whatever the ACT, um, the sort of where Parliament is going to sit. Uh, we sort of tend to underplay the regional differences in Australia, but I think we have huge regional differences as far as political culture is concerned. That's always been the case. The recent election has emphasised that. And I think that strengthening federation and strengthening the extent to which each of the states can look after their own affairs would really improve the political situation. Preaching to the choir there, mate. You're on the Looking Forward podcast. <laughs> we like a bit of argument, but you're not going to get much on that one. So, yes, you have been listening to the Looking Forward, a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. As I mentioned, we currently have our end of financial appeal 
running. If you want to reduce your taxable income, send some our way and we'll look after you. You can also join as a member and receive many great products, uh, including the uh, IPA review and uh, advance notice of events and all sorts of cool things. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Gideon Rosner. Thank you. And Zach Gorman. Cheers. And, of course, as always, a big thank you to our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.